Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. So before I read the text, um, I just want to really encourage you, if for some reason you missed last week's message, it was 1 Peter 3 from verse 1 through to 12, I'd really encourage you to listen to that um, we covered many very controversial topics. Um, we were asking the question, does God have the right to tell us how to do sex and marriage and all of the kind of associated topics around that? And so if you missed that, I really, really want to encourage you. If you're part of Covenant Grace, it is critical that you listen to that message um, just to shape your thoughts around what's happening in popular culture and what does the Bible say regarding our sexuality. So please, I implore you to please go listen to that. We've had some fantastic feedback from last Sunday. And if you did miss that, please do get online. It is available online and listen to it. All right, verse 13. I'm going to read from verse 13 to 22. And uh, we're in for some really interesting stuff here. So here we go. Verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, there are many benefits to expository preaching, where we go through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And today, this is one of the side benefits. One of the side benefits is you get to watch your preacher squirm. This is a very interesting passage, isn't it? And when I first read it, I really was squirming and thinking, gosh, how on earth are we going to make head and tail of this, make sense of it. I mean, it's just a very interesting passage. But I must say that my squirming eventually gave way to 
solitude. As I rested in what many scholars have labored over in this particular passage. And there are differing views. There are differing views. There's kind of a spectrum of interpretation, particularly the last few verses. But I want to just point you to what I feel is the most um, meaningful interpretation. And so let's begin. The big, the big idea here is that as Christians, we're going to suffer. So the question we want to ask right up front is, is there a difference between suffering and persecution? Suffering and persecution, is there a difference? And in one way we could say yes, and in another way we could say no. For example, you know, if you hit, hit your thumb with a, with a hammer, you're going to experience some pain. If you, if you fail your exam, you're going to feel some pain. If you crash your car, you're going to suffer in a particular way. If you fall off your horse, you're going to suffer. If you get sick with COVID, you may suffer. You could have a stroke. You could die. And we could go on and we could go on and we could describe all the various forms of pain and suffering that people experience in this lifetime. All that to say that suffering comes to all people and it comes to us all in different shapes and in different sizes. And the question then is, how are we to respond to it? And I want to differentiate right up front between two forms or two kinds of suffering. The first one is suffering as a result of being human. That's you and me, right? In fact, that's everyone. Everyone who's a human being will experience suffering. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. Not only do we live in a fallen, broken world, but we live in fallen and broken bodies. This is the whole point of being redeemed and saved and and, and expressing that and only finding full fulfillment of that in our eternity with God. In this lifetime, in these bodies, we will all experience sin and we will all experience sickness. This is part and parcel of our human reality. All of us possess frail and finite flesh that will one day give way to sickness and disease and end in death. No one escapes death. This is the human nature. In addition, not only are we living in fallenness, in the midst of fallenness, but we also sometimes suffer because of our own sinful mistakes or our own sinful actions, and then also at the hand of others who've sinned against us. So this human condition is a serious condition, but a common condition. We all will experience these things. We will experience sickness. We will experience death, and we will experience our own sin and the tragedy of our own sin, and we will experience the tragedy of other sins against us. So that's the first form, suffering as a result of being human. Secondly, there is suffering as a result of being a Christian. And this is what Peter is aiming at in this particular passage. We could also refer to this as unjust suffering, or we use the word persecution. This is where the The difference comes in. In other words, we will as Christians experience suffering because we are being persecuted for being a Christ follower. As Christ followers, you may lose your job. As Christ followers, you may lose a friend. As Christ followers, you may lose your freedom. You may even lose your head. 
persecution comes to Christians. It doesn't come to all, all people. It doesn't come to every human being. It's particular. It comes to those who hold to Christ's teachings, those of us who embrace Christianity. Now, in all of these forms of suffering, we are assured, even the human cause, uh, the human form or the, the Christian form, persecution, we are assured that God is with us. We are assured that nothing comes into our lives apart from his knowledge. And that means that all of this form of suffering, whether it's sickness or disease or tragedy or persecution, all of it comes either from the hand of God or it is allowed to pass through his hand. And that should bring us great comfort because God is sovereign then over all our lives, including our trials. Now, let me just say this. Learning this theology, this is a theology of suffering. Learning a theology of suffering is not easy to do when you are suffering already. Because it's tender, right? When you are already experiencing pain, when you are already going through things that are hard for you, it is difficult to develop a theology of suffering. And that's why Peter is writing this. Peter is writing to equip the church, to steady the church, to galvanize the church in their convictions that when the tragedy hits and when the persecution hits, God is with us so that our fragile hearts will not fail us. And so 1 Peter is the battle for the armor. 1 Peter is the armor for the battle. <laughs> Wrong way around. 1 Peter is there to equip us to know how to put out the fiery darts. 1 Peter is here to strengthen us in our resolve in how do we not give in. So Peter's primary focus here is suffering that comes from persecution as a result of being a faithful Christian. So let's walk through the text Verse by verse. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And so the first proposal is, as Christians, we do that a lot. We do good to others. The Christian value, the Christian ethic is a good value, a good ethic. It is upstanding in society. And when Christians do what Christians should do, no one should harm us. Who is there to harm you, he says, if you are zealous for what is good? The authorities are actually going to be thankful. The people above you that you're subject to, whether, remember, he's talking about servants and slaves and husbands and wives, and he's talking about being in a different context, in a culture, at least for them, where Rome was ruling. He's saying, Christians, don't back away. Go and do good. Go and do, live out your Christian life because most people will see it as good and they won't harm you. That's the one way of thinking we could interpret that. The other way we could interpret that is, hey, at the end of the day, even if you are harmed physically, they can't harm you ultimately because we cannot be destroyed. Our joy cannot be taken from us. You can throw us in a jail, but we will still be joyful because Christ is our hope and not necessarily in our circumstances, nothing 
can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. And so they could try and harm us physically. They can try and restrict our freedoms. They can do all sorts of manner of things. But at the end of the day, they cannot rob us of our inheritance, right? Why? Because it's an imperishable inheritance. It's not kept in this world. It's kept by God in heaven for us. But then he goes on in verse 14 and then says, but, and there's always a, a problem when we see that, right? You know, if you're engaging with your kids or if you're engaging in a, in a, in a, a business interaction and there's this, you know, we're doing fine, but, and it's kind of, you got that feeling here, you know, we're doing good, but, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, there it is. For being a Christ follower, you're going to suffer. If you should suffer for Christ's sake, for righteousness' sake, look what he says. You will be blessed. Wow. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. What Peter is doing here is Peter is echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Peter is saying, if you suffer for your own sin... If you suffer because you've made sinful mistakes, that's your own problem. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, if you suffer because you are a Christian and you're holding fast to the teachings of Christ, you will be blessed. He's echoing the words of Jesus. Notice that in God's mind, according to God's perspective, suffering for Christ is not the opposite of blessing. It's a means of blessing. He says, if you suffer for righteousness sake, so if you hold your ground and you stand upon Christian ethics and principles and you hold to what the Bible teaches and you get persecuted for it, you are blessed. You are blessed, he says. And you might ask, well, how? Because it doesn't feel like it when I'm being hated and I'm being mocked and I'm being ridiculed. It doesn't feel like I'm being blessed. But here's what Peter wants you to see, is that that mocking and that ridiculing is an evidence that you have faith and that you have grace and that you are Christ's because Christ received that. And now you're receiving it. And so you belong to him. You are suffering for Christ's sake. And so you are part of him. You are joined to him. You are married to him. It is an evidence to your own soul that your faith is true. Listen to what Jesus said. This is how Jesus said in Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account. Blessed are you. It's incredible. And then furthermore, as we go to verse 15, Peter then says that persecution is not only going to provide for you blessing for your own soul, though there is pain externally. He says it's also going to provide opportunity for witness. Look what he says. Always being ready, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we don't want to just bash people, but we want to be willing and we want to be ready. The word here, reason, 
for hope. The word reason there is the word apologia, which is where we get the word apologetics from. And it's not that we're making an apology, I'm sorry. No, no, not at all. Is that we're actually giving an answer. Apologia meaning answer. We are giving a reason. We are giving a well thought out answer for the hope that is in us. And so he's saying what can happen is that when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, it's, it's potentially going to open a window of opportunity. Because... You're not going to run from the persecution. You're going to stand your ground. You're going to hold. You're not going to just go, oh, flip, I'm getting persecuted, and so I'm going to compromise and change my view. No, you don't change your view. You hold your ground, and and then people are going, well, what's going on here? This person has conviction. There is firm conviction here. I want to know what it is. What is the reason for the hope that is in you? And then we've got to be ready, church. We've got to be ready with an argument. We've got to be ready with an answer. But notice, it's not saying that you have to have the best argument. What it is suggesting is that you just need to give a reason for the hope. For the hope. It's not that you need to give, give your dissertation at this point, right? No, no, no. It's not that you need to have the, the fancy theological argument for, for, for why you're standing for Christ. No, no. It's saying give a reason for the hope. And our hope is simple. Our hope is Jesus, our risen Lord. In chapter 1, it says that we have a living hope. It's the risen Lord. He's our hope. He's our living hope. And we have an imperishable inheritance that he's keeping for us. And So persecute me all you like. And then he wraps it up in verse 17. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, for being a Christian. If that should be God's will. Because sometimes, sometimes it's just your own stupidity, right? <laughs> sometimes it's your mistake. Sometimes it's someone else's sin against you. But sometimes it is because you've been doing good than doing evil. And, and this isn't easy to hear. That it, Sometimes it's God's Will. Sometimes it's God's design. God has planned for you to suffer. How does that land with you? It is, it is oftentimes God's plan, His will for you to go through persecution, to suffer. Now, that's not an easy thing to hear, right? And so Peter's aware of that. And now what he's going to do from verse 18 to 22 is he's going to support that statement. How, Peter? How is it God's will? How, how can there be any blessing? How can there be any good come from our suffering? And Peter is going to point us to Christ. And he's going to point us to Christ in four very clear ways. And he begins in verse 18 with the word for. So this is his reason. He says for Christ also suffered once for sins. Peter is exhorting us to persevere when persecuted by pointing us to Christ. And he's going to do it in four ways. Number one, here we go. Christ is our substitute. We see this in verse 14. For Christ also suffered once For sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Notice the word 
also. For Christ also suffered. You want you moaning about your suffering? You're a sinner. You deserve to suffer. Christ, he suffered. He didn't deserve to suffer. In other words, Christ also suffered. Therefore, those who follow him will also suffer. Those who follow him, if Christ had to take up his cross, then those who follow him also get to take up their cross. We get to take up our cross. We get to walk the path of suffering. The servant is not greater than the master, right? But Peter is saying even more than that. Notice he says that Christ also suffered once for sins. Not his own, right? No, no. He explains. He says the righteous Jesus for the unrighteous, us. So he's suffering for our sin against him. You know how that feels when others sin against you? And what's the goal? To bring us to God. You could say to reconcile us to God. Why? Because it, it was the sin that kept us from God. It was sins that needed to be punished. And if Jesus didn't intervene, if Jesus didn't suffer for our sins, we would not have reconciliation with God. And so this is great news for suffering Christians. This is excellent news for, Christ, for suffering Christians. Why? Because we see here that our greatest enemy, sin, is our greatest enemy. Not the people who are persecuting us. Not the pain that I'm experiencing. No, our greatest enemy, sin, that separates us from God, has been defeated. And so we have no reason to fear. No reason to fear. And we also have no reason to doubt the love of God. Because oftentimes when we are persecuted, or when we are suffering, some of the first dark places we go to is to doubt the love of God. Does God really love me if I'm going through this? If I'm experiencing this pain, if I'm experiencing this persecution, where is God when I'm going through it? And, and what Peter is reminding us of here is that God has not forsaken you. God has gone to great lengths to deal with your greatest problem. The greatest enemy of your life. The greatest threat to your life. Forget about all these other things. These other things pale into insignificance in light of the threat of sin, which will damn you for all eternity. These are just momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weightiness of what Christ has done for us. And so what we see here is that suffering is not a sign that God has turned against us. No, not at all. Christ has carried our sin and brought us to God. And he will not turn his back on us. I can promise you that. In the midst of pain and trial and suffering and persecution, God has not forgotten you. He sent his son for you, the righteous for the unrighteous. How much more will he not sustain you and keep you? That's the first thing Peter reminds us. Christ is our substitute. Secondly, Christ is our preacher. He goes on in verse 18. He says, having been put to death 
in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is where things get a little more tricky. So here we need to just think through this carefully. The word spirit here, being made alive in the spirit, it should be capitalized. That word spirit, there should be capital S, spirit. Because it's not talking about Jesus' own human spirit. Because it's impossible for that to be put to death, right? Any human being who dies physically, their spirit is alive. And so even more so with Jesus, the perfect son of God, it is impossible for his spirit to have died and then be made alive. No, no, it was his body that was put to death. It says that he was put to death in the flesh. His physical body died and then he was made alive in, but you could say by. It's, it's, it's an equal translation. You could say by the Spirit. And so this is really helpful for us to navigate this. Jesus was made alive by the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, verse 19, in which, in the Spirit, all right, in the Holy Spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits. That's lowercase s spirits. Now, the, now he's talking about human spirits. Who are where? In prison. That's a metaphor for hell. Well, who are these people who are in hell? Well, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey. Okay, there you go. They were unbelieving. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Oh, flip, we've gone all the way back to Noah's days. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought to safety through water. Now, there are a couple of interpretations. I'll give you two that I think are, are, are fine, but, but wrong. All right. So the first one is that the spirits in prison are referring to fallen angels or demonic powers who had sinned at some point in history past, particularly maybe at the time of Noah. And for some reason, Jesus is now going to proclaim his victory to them. That's the one view. They are fallen angels or demonic powers. A second view is that it means that Jesus, between the time of his death and resurrection, you know that time when he was in the grave, he then visited hell to then proclaim his victory over the unbelieving dead from Noah's day. And that is also a fairly popular view, but I think it's also not the right view. Because none of those views do real justice for what Peter is trying to illustrate about Noah's day. And so the most compelling view, in my opinion, which I was helped by some great scholars, is this. Peter wants to encourage this suffering church by reminding them of another dark time in history. They're about to be absolutely plundered with persecution. And so he wants to remind them, he wants to equip them with another time, another dark day where Jesus did an amazing work by the Spirit way back then. And so Peter sees here a parallel picture between the culture of Noah's day and the culture of his own day. And I want to suggest to you we see a parallel picture between Noah's day, Peter's day, and our day. And so here's what he's trying to tell us. The days of Noah were marked, we know, by gross immorality, 
and mass unbelief. God's, God's own people were very few in number. In fact, it was only Noah's family that were righteous. And we know that they were mocked. They were ridiculed. They were persecuted for their faith. And despite this mocking, Noah faithfully preached. And the message he preached was, people, hear me, God is coming in judgment. A flood is coming to flood the earth, but I'm going to build an ark. God has told me to build an ark, and you can gather with me. God has made a way. God has provided a way for us to escape this judgment that is coming. And so Peter says, well, how did they respond? And he tells us, no, they didn't obey. So Noah was faithful in preaching, but they did not obey. They rejected Noah's message. They spurned the patience of God. They rejected the offer of rescue, and they all died in the flood, right? They died. Their bodies perished. And then what happened to their spirits? Those people who died in the flood, unbelieving people, they went to hell. Their spirits are in prison. This is the language that Peter is using. And so Peter is telling us here that it was Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate, so the Christ before his birth, the pre-incarnate Christ was preaching through Noah by the Spirit. It was in the Spirit that he went to the people who are now in prison. Then they weren't in prison. They were in their physical bodies, and they were destroyed by the flood. But since then, they've been in prison. And so Peter is referencing his own day, but thinking back to a previous day. Now, I hope I haven't confused you. Let me explain a little further. Because Peter uses this illustration in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 11, Peter is talking about the Old Testament prophets who had insight Predicting the sufferings of Christ. Have a look at this in verse 11. It says they were the prophets inquiring what person about Jesus or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. There's the same language. The Old Testament prophets gave the message, but whose message was it? It was from Christ by the Spirit. And so Christ was preaching through the Old Testament prophets about his own sufferings. How did he do that? Because Christ hasn't yet got a body. No, he was doing it by the Spirit, in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit in Noah was Christ coming to the people of Noah's day. Now let's put all of that together, and I'll read to you what D.A. Carson says. He says this, By the Spirit, Christ went and preached at the time of Noah, to those who are now spirits in prison, because they disobeyed when Christ was speaking to them through Noah. Now, why? Why do we need to know this, Peter? Well, Peter, like I said, is drawing a parallel between their day and our day. How does this, how is this strange language encourage us? Well, let me just give you quick three, three reasons how this is encouraging for us. Well, firstly, it assures us of the greatness of Christ, doesn't it? It assures us of the, the, the 
the immutable power of Christ, that he was not bounded by space and time. The pre-incarnate Christ was free to go and preach by the Spirit. And I want to suggest to you now that Christ is in a resurrected body. He is still, although bound by space and time, he is not restricted in any way. And he can go ahead of us through the Spirit, by the Spirit, and he's even with us today. That's a huge encouragement. He can reach people everywhere. Wherever you are, you can have Jesus Christ with you by the Spirit. That's a huge encouragement. Secondly, we also see uh, that it is much better to obey God and suffer than to disobey and be cast into the prison of verse 19, right? It is a reminder that it is way better to suffer for Christ than to spend eternity in hell. Thirdly, we may think that Peter, um, sorry, we may think that Noah and then even Peter's generation was small and weak. What can they do? How can we as a small, weak people, the church, there's government structures, there's superpowers, there's the super rich, there's all these, what are we going to do? We're just a small, fragile group of people. We're God's people. We're being persecuted. And we may think, well, there's no, there's no advantage. We're a small minority. And Peter is reminding us that a small minority can accomplish great things. That's the point of verse 20 where it says there that only eight people were brought to safety through the water. And those eight people were mocked and ridiculed and persecuted, and they were a small minority, and the majority voice was big and loud, and majority voice was intimidating, but oh, how the tables have turned, right? Oh, how the tables have turned. The point is, if you're a minority with God, you're a majority. Don't despise your smallness, or your weakness. We need to move on. We're almost there. Thirdly, we see Christ is our Savior. Noah and his family believed and they obeyed and they were saved through and by the water, right? And then Peter makes the strange statement. He says in verse 21, Therefore, baptism, which corresponds to this picture, now saves you. And we've got to think, well, Peter, hang on. You've just told us that Christ suffered once for sins to bring us to God. They, that's how we're saved. Christ suffering for sins, we bring us to God. Are you now saying, uh, oh, sorry, guys, uh, point one, point two is, and now you need to be baptized and then you are saved? No, obviously not. We know that not just because this is a, a complex passage, but because of what the scriptures teach elsewhere. But notice, he says it corresponds to this. In other words, it's not an exact picture. It's a shady picture. It's a, it's, a, it's a murky illustration. It's a mirror in a sense. What he's saying is this. He's saying that baptism saves us in the same way that the ark saved Noah. It wasn't the water, right, that saved him. No, if you were in the water, you were in trouble. So the water didn't save, it's the ark that saved. The water is a picture of judgment, and the ark on top of the water was a picture of salvation. 
It's Christ who saves. It's always Christ who saves. It's never been anyone else that saves but Christ. And so baptism is merely a picture of both judgment and salvation. The, the, the picture here is that if we're a suffering people, we can look back on our baptism and go, God has already judged Christ on my behalf. God, this, this suffering I'm experiencing, this pain I'm experiencing, we may think, God, are you judging me? And Peter is saying, no, no, no. Remember your baptism? Jesus was judged for you. And you're safe in the ark. You're safe. And, and that's a picture of your salvation. Christ was judged for us. God will not condemn us. If we are in Christ, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ is our Savior. That's all he's trying to say there. And then he ends it. Fourth and final point, verse 22. Christ is our sovereign Lord. He says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Talk about vindication. He who suffered at the hands of sinners for our sins, he who was the lamb that was slain is now the resurrected Lord. And more than that, notice he has all authority. He is the sovereign Lord. Every angel and every authority and every power is now subject to him. How is this an encouragement to suffering Christians? Well, you are in Christ. He is your sovereign Lord. And so when you are this minority voice in your workplace or in the, in, the, in the varsity, or wherever you find yourself, if you are the minority voice suffering for righteousness' sake, you can know that one day you will be vindicated. Just as Christ was finally vindicated above all authority. And so when you are tempted to blend in, when you are tempted to compromise, when you are tempted not to speak up, when you are tempted not to stand out from the ways of the world, Peter says to us, you can stand. And in the moment, you may be standing like a lamb that feels like you're being slaughtered. But one day, you too will be seated with Christ in glory. And he's got your back. He suffered for you already. He paid the price. He is now sovereign Lord over everyone and everything. Four pictures of how Christ suffered for us that strengthens us and shows us that we are blessed when we are persecuted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for this really deep and in many ways complex passage. And it's my prayer that you would have served us this morning in our hearts and in our minds. I pray that our minds would have been stretched, but more importantly, our hearts would have been enlarged. Our hearts would be set aflame with this, this great knowledge that if Christ, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And that we... We can stand for righteousness' sake. We can hold fast to our convictions 
and we can face persecution for it. And we can give a reason for the hope that is in us. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for its encouragement, for its exhortation, that we can persevere when persecuted. And we thank you that our greatest enemy, the greatest things that we are to fear, have been taken care of through the cross. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would sense your nearness. We pray that we'd sense your sovereign hand resting on us, even now. We pray that we would not be tempted to be quiet, give up, cave, blend in, but that we would stand. And that we would do even more and rejoice, knowing that we are blessed for Christ's sake. Strengthen us as a church. We are moving into darker and darker days where persecution is growing. And I pray that you would strengthen us, prepare us, steady us, Lord, for the road ahead. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.